Well, good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to be with you all today. Thank you again for joining us for this time of worship as we once again have an opportunity to open up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We find ourselves in one of the last two sermons that we'll be spending in this, uh, this study. And so I'm excited to get back into it today. As we begin then, let's begin by reading our text before us. 1 John chapter 5. Today we'll be covering verses 18 through 20. There we read these words from John. We know that no one who is born of God sins. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well, in just about every activity that we seek to accomplish in our life, just about every position that we might fill in our day-to-day calling, there are certain fundamental principles that we know we must hold to in order to be successful. This is true both for hobbies as well as our own careers. You know the fundamentals of any given sport that you might play. I have the great privilege of, of coaching both my son and daughter as they play soccer, as they're learning how to play, and I'm far from an expert, but I know enough to teach five-year-olds and six-year-olds. And I understand that from the earliest of age, they need to understand the, the basic concept of passing the ball, of dribbling, of shooting. And so we spend all of our time, all of our practices on those fundamentals, knowing that regardless of how complex the game might become later, those fundamentals must always be practiced. The same is true for any other sport we play. It's true in, in the realm of leadership when it comes to certain characteristics that ought to mark us. It is true when it comes to parenting as there are certain fundamentals of parenting we follow. I'm sure it's true when it comes to cooking and all sorts of other things that I know nothing about. And in all these activities, there are those basic principles that always must come into play. So that regardless of how complicated or complex our activity might become, we're able to go back to those fundamentals and remember, okay, if I just do this, then surely things will get a little less complex. The same thing is true when it comes to our practice of the faith. And this is very important and hopefully, ultimately, very encouraging for us to remember. For just like the believers in John's day, we live in very complicated times. And the world around us will consistently ask us questions that, that at the surface seem and sound very complex and difficult for us to respond to appropriately. In the midst of all of our confusion, in the midst of all the temptation that confusion can bring about, we desperately need passages like this before us in 1 John 5. For in 1 John 5, we are reminded one last time of three of those fundamental principles. Three things that remain true regardless of how difficult and confusing this world is. Three things that we can remind ourselves daily so as to ensure that we are staying on the right path. As we look at this this morning, then I pray that we might be encouraged by these fundamentals and that we might use these fundamentals as an opportunity to, to really examine our own lives and ask whether or not we're still holding true to these things or if we've allowed the world to cause us to become confused. Before we dig into those three fundamentals, let me open up our time in prayer, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, as we begin our time today, God, 
we come before you in the midst of very confusing times. Certainly our world is no less sinful than before, and I think it's safe to say our world is no more complex than it ever has been in generations past. For Satan has always been at work, offering the same lies, the same deceptions, God, and the world still continues to do that which the world has always done. But God, as we go about our day-to-day lives, Lord, we confess to you it is easy for us to become confused by the schemes of the devil. It is easy for us to become confused by the complexity of the arguments thrown at us daily. And in the midst of our confusion, we acknowledge, God, that we are prone to wander off the path that you set before us. We are prone to fall short of the calling that you've made so clear. And so, God, as we examine this text in 1 John yet again today, we pray that you might remove all confusion from us. Holy Spirit, cause us to hear the word clearly as it is presented. Cause us to see Christ in this passage. Cause us to see ourselves in this passage, Spirit. Open our eyes to where we have fallen short. Bring conviction where there needs to be conviction and bring repentance where there needs to be repentance, God. As always, I pray for any unbeliever who's here today, God. I pray for their salvation. I pray that you open up their eyes to the darkness around them. And I pray they might see for the first time the light and beauty and glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, God. We love you, God. And we praise you, Jesus Christ, for opening our eyes to these truths. Might you be pleased and honored in all that we say this morning. And it is in your name, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. As we examine our text today, you'll see from your outline that we will look at three fundamental principles, three basic truths that always remain true. Three things we know. The first, and perhaps the most basic, is found in verse 18, where John one last time reminds us that we as believers know exactly what to do. That is to say, we always know how to live. Read with me again in verse 18. As John reminds us with these words, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. As John continues to bring his letter to a close, he one last time tells his readers, readers, here's what life looks like. Here's what you're expected to do. And if you're unfamiliar with the rest of 1 John, if you're not careful in reading this verse, it might seem that John is suggesting that true believers live a life of, perfect, uh, of perpetual perfection. It is easy to assume that John is suggesting some ability for us to attain sinlessness in this life, on this side of eternity. In fact, some of you perhaps have heard some people who profess Christ profess that very thing, that true believers live apart from sin. The problem with that interpretation, of course, is well, everything else that John has already said up to this point, isn't it? For if you've read John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, verse 17, you've seen John has already acknowledged the clear reality of sin, even in the life of believers. If you need a reminder, you can just go back a couple of verses to verse 16 in the same chapter. For as we covered last week, there John said, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, He shall ask God, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. In the same way, in the very first chapter of 1 John, John spoke of the reality of sin when he says in 1 John 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
time and time again in 1 John, then John has acknowledged the fact that we do sin as believers. Regardless of how mature you are, you fall short of God's perfection every single day. Amen? Amen. A hearty amen to our fallenness, right? We understand this is the truth, and so we understand that John cannot be saying that we are sinless. Understanding that fact, then, what we must realize that John is teaching is that while we still have sin in us, that is, we commit sin, our lives are still different, and as believers, our relationship with sin has categorically changed. Unbelievers, as we'll see here in a moment, are still enslaved to sin. They have no choice but to continue to fall in that same pattern. As believers, however, we've been given a new nature. We now understand the the reality of sin. We no longer desire sin, and so we fight against sin. We repent of sin when we commit it, and we strive to daily follow after that righteousness that Christ has so clearly commanded us to follow. While we are far from perfect, we understand that the righteousness of God is, is quite straightforward. It's quite practical. We've seen a number of examples of that righteousness in the book of 1 John. As, as John has told us specific examples of what the daily activity of a life of a believer looks like. We don't need to run through all those things, but we've spoken in our study of the reality of, of the need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is what righteousness looks like. It looks like loving practically your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It looks like praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ when they fall short. It looks like living a life in the light of the kingdom. As we go outside of the book of 1 John, we see many other helpful passages that clearly detail the righteousness of God that we follow after. Some of those passages are ones that, that you perhaps have memorized. One of the most famous summary examples of this is found back in the prophet of Micah. Micah chapter 6, where the prophet speaking to Israel says this, beginning in verse 6 of Micah. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Here we see a practical picture of the standards set by God for his people. Here we're given that common reminder in Scripture that God does not ultimately desire some empty ritual sacrifice. He did not seek that empty sacrifice from the Israelites, nor does he simply put the standard of coming to church every week and sitting in the pews. That's not where the standard is set. While those things are important and we're commanded to not forsake the fellowship of the brethren, ultimately the same standards that God set for his people in verse 8 of Micah 6 are true for us. We are to love justice. It means we don't oppress those who are under us. It is that we love kindness and that we maintain this daily humility, this daily dependence. That is the standard of God. The New Testament is filled with similar examples of lists that speak to this clear, practical righteousness that God has set, uh, set the standard for us. You think perhaps most famously in Galatians 5, where in verses 16 through 24, Paul lists out the life of the unbeliever versus the life of the believer and puts it in that terminology of the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. Describing the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, Paul offers these familiar words. 
the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Again, it's a passage many of you children memorized. Many of us of adults has, have heard these basic teachings. We understand that the standard that God has set for us as believers is pretty blatantly obvious in Scripture, isn't it? You don't have to be in Christ long to know what the life of a Christian is supposed to look like. And yet, despite the clarity of God's word, despite how gracious he is in painting this very clear portrait for us, we daily forget these things. We can easily move past these expectations, and the temptation for us daily becomes to excuse our sin. There's a number of reasons why we do this. Many of us do this at least in part because, let's face it, we live in a world that has a very different list of virtues, don't we? And just as God is so gracious as to remind us constantly of the standards he set for us, so too our world would love to remind you daily the standards it is set for you to follow. And as we hear the world speaking of those standards, it's easy to, to forget what God has told us. And it's easy to turn God's standards into God's suggestions. Suggestions to, to live a happier life. And we take those suggestions and we think, okay, that sounds good for a child. But I live in the real world with real responsibilities. And so I, I maybe need to play the game by, by a different set of rules. And so as we grow older as believers... We know that Paul says that we're to be kind. We know that Paul tells us to put the needs of others ahead of our own, but we look at the world around us and we say, yeah, Paul, it doesn't really work that, right, that way, though, does it? I mean, how young were you when you first heard a phrase like, nice guys finish last? That's a standard saying that I heard many times as a kid. The point being, yeah, it's good to be nice unless you're in competition with someone and then don't be nice at all. And that competition exists primarily in, in sports and athletics as a kid, but as we grow older, well, it expands to every other arena, doesn't it? And so suddenly we remove the standard of God and we replace it with the standard of the world. And we say, no, you look out for number one first. My needs come first. And suddenly we hold to the standards of the world. We understand very clearly similarly the commands of John and others, when he says that we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, or we're told to avoid any form of gossip or slander, and we say, amen. Oh, but I really dislike this person. And if I really dislike this person, then suddenly it's okay to speak ill of them, because I don't like them, and because what they're doing is, is shameful. It's disgusting, it's foolish, and so suddenly we remove labels like gossip and slander, and we replace it with sayings like, well, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm just telling it like it is. We fool ourselves into thinking that's okay, but it's sin. Blatant sin, falling so clearly short of the standards of God. We could go through any one of the standards that we read through in Micah and Galatians and 1 John and the Gospels, whatever you want. And with each of those standards, the world steps in and, and it attempts to supplant it. It, it, it. it attempts to replace it. And in the midst of that replacement, in the midst of that confusion, we as believers can become overwhelmed. And we can easily start saying the standards are too high. 
it makes us too vulnerable. It sets us up to be hurt. It sets us up for failure. And so surely, surely not any one of us could possibly hold to that standard. Surely there is none of us who can stay on that path that God has designed. Well, John knows that. God knows that. And that is why it's so helpful as we turn back to 1 John 5 to see that, that John doesn't just remind us of our aim, of our standard. John reminds us why we are able and expected to hold to the standard. For again, look at verse 18. There John says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Here is your standard, believer, the righteousness of God. Here is the path, the trail that you've been set upon, and here is how you know you will persevere. Because there is one who will preserve you. That preservation is what John is ultimately speaking to in that last half of verse 18. Where he says, he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now as we consider this ability, of course, there's a question that many people ask of John. That question being, who is the one who keeps him? Is John speaking of the believer? We've been born of God, so, so is he saying, we as Christians who have been born of God keep ourselves for God? That we hold closely to God and that by that self-willed preservation we are preserved? Is, is that the message of Scripture? No. No, while there is a responsibility of us as believers to follow after Christ, to persevere, that is certainly a clear calling. John understands what all New Testament authors understand. And that is the fact that your ultimate preservation, believer, is not dependent upon your ability to persevere. That is to say, your own innate willingness. Your preservation is guaranteed because it is a work of God himself. It is what Jesus alone can accomplish for us. And like so many other times in our study of 1 John, we understand that the John is not just making up this role of God off the cuff. For he has heard Jesus pray the same request. For if you will, turn back with me to the Gospel of John. And you see Jesus praying this, this specific prayer for the preservation of his disciples. In the Gospel of John, verse 17. There is Jesus offers his famous high priestly prayer on behalf of all disciples. We pick up his request in verse 12. Here Jesus speaks and says, while I was with them, that is, while I was with the disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Jesus, of course, understands better than any one of us could the dangers we face as believers. Not just the dangers of the world that hates you, and it does hate you, it hates us, but on a much grander scale, the dangers that, that stem from Satan. Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion, as Peter says, seeking someone to devour. 
Jesus understood that which John is reminding us, and that is the fact that when left on our own, there is no hope for the preservation of your soul. As confident as you might be, believer, in your knowledge of Scripture, in your maturity, in your ability to resist temptation, you cannot stand against Satan when left on your own strength. Oh, you are nothing. Except for the fact that you do not stand on your own power, we have God in our corner. And we have God who preserves us. We have Jesus Christ who has prayed this. We have God who has promised, uh, promised it to us throughout all eternity. This is why earlier in John 10, Jesus can so confidently say that as the good shepherd, he never loses a single sheep from his flock. This is why he can say, my father who is greater than all holds us in his hand and no one can pluck us from the father's hand, even Satan himself, as desperate as he might be. As much as he might work to take you from, your, from the Father's hand, he cannot even touch you, believer. And so the reason why we hold to our path, the reason why there's no need to give into the temptations of the world is because we understand Jesus is at work preserving our very soul. And so we strive to stay on that path. We strive to thank God daily for preserving us, and we strive to live out an appreciation for that preservation. And so we remind ourselves of the standards that God has given us. We read the fruit of the Spirit. We read Micah 6.8. We read through the Gospels. And, and constantly our question we must ask ourselves is, does this describe me today? Is this the path that I am on? When an outside observer watches the way you speak to those at your workplace, when an outside observer watches how you respond to your children when they are frustrating, when an outside observer listens to the way you speak of people that you disagree with, do they hear kindness? Do they hear gentleness? Do they hear love? Or do they hear and see the same things they hear and see from everyone else in the world? Are they just able to walk away with another example of Christian hypocrisy? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not suggesting again that we can do this perfectly, and indeed, every single one of us is guilty of hypocrisy. And yet still, as we come back to 1 John, we remember that that does not excuse our sin. And so daily, in the midst of a world that will tell you to live a certain way, you say, no, I, I know what the world says, but I also know what Christ has said. Despite of how, how great people might speak of of some celebrity who is prideful, who is adulterous, who is any number of things, we do not join with them and say, yes, amen, that's the type of person I want to be. You know, we say, no, or they fall far short of the standards of God. And so we maintain the same standard because we know what God has accomplished for us. We know what we are to do every single day. And as we've said time and time again in the study, it matters not how old you are, how long you've been in the faith, your position of authority, whatever it is, the standard remains the exact same. And praise be to God for the fact that that standard is pretty clear. And so daily believer, remember. Remember that you always know what to do. Remember you know the standards that God has set for you. And you know that in large part because of our second point. That second point being we also know who we are. 
Verse 19, John repeats a phrase and a truth he has said so many times already. Once again, he says, we know. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John has spoken of the reality of the Christian's identity numerous times in this letter. In fact, every single chapter of 1 John has some reference to this idea that we are of God. We don't have time to read through the entirety of the letter, but, but you can see it if you simply gloss through the chapters we've already covered. You see this reminder of our identity back in as early as chapter 1, verse 3, when John speaks of the fact that our fellowship is ultimately with the Father. Let's say we're in relationship with Him. As you move into chapter 2, verse 12, he speaks to little children who have overcome the evil one. He speaks to those who have known God from the beginning. Later on in chapter 2, verse 28, he speaks of the confidence we have at Christ's coming because of what he then speaks of in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, because of the fact that we know who we are. That is to say, we are children of God. Time and time and time again, Regardless of what John is discussing in his letter, he comes back to the same point. He comes back and says, remember, remember Christian who you are. Remember the name that you bear. Remember that you have been saved and you have been adopted into the family of God. The question we have to ask, of course, is, is why does John repeat this so many times? And he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians whom I assume have heard John speak this truth so many times before this letter, right? They've all professed faith in Christ. They've all been told they're children of God. They've all been told they're saved. In the same way that many of us in here today have heard the same truth over and over and over and over again. We get it, John. We're saved from our sins. We get it, John, that the gospel speaks of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us and, and how he's brought us into this new relationship with him. But John, what about this? What about this complex, complicated issue out here? What are we going to do with them, those false teachers? What are we going to do with our confusion, John? And in response, John continually says, remember, remember who you are, believer. Remember you're God's child. Remember you are of God. Why does he repeat this so often? Well, I don't think you need a great deal of imagination to understand very quickly why John would repeat this. John repeats this because he knows his audience desperately needs to hear it every time. John repeats this because he's speaking to individuals he views as his own children whom he knows are suffering through a great deal of doubt and confusion. And for good reason. For here you have these average lay people in the church who are plodding along and obeying God just as John taught them, and then suddenly, dear friends of theirs who once professed the same faith are out and about on the streets preaching a new gospel? Suddenly, these, these former friends and perhaps family members are, are telling them, listen, what John said is fine, but it's not enough. You need more. You need a new revelation, and, and we have it. And in response to this new event, many of them, it is clear, are, are doubting their salvation. They're doubting their security in Christ. And so John comes and tells them time and time again, no, believer, 
You're set. You are saved. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And you will be confident and steadfast from here throughout all eternity. John repeats this message over and over again because he understands how essential it is in the midst of our own daily calling. And it remains essential to us today. It remains so essential to us. And and as we look at the world today and we see so many of the, the frustrations, as we see the warring and the tribalism that marks so much of the discussions in our culture today, as we see the sins that other believers fall into, and as we we confess our own sins and temptations that we daily battle. I believe so oftentimes these things are caused ultimately by, by just identity confusion. At the root, it's, it's an inability to remember who we are. We forget who we are, and so we go off to other idols as we'll explore in the coming weeks. We forget who we are, and so we suddenly are desperate to fit in with this group or that crowd. We forget how grand our identity is, and so we, we embrace whatever identity the world tells us we should embrace. And so we become a fan of the right team. We support the right policies. We, we become obsessed with our hobby our peers are obsessed with. And we do this because we forget how significant of identity we've already been given. And so like the world of John, like the believers receiving this letter originally, it is clear we still need this reminder every single day. In the midst of our own struggles, we need someone to come in and say, you are of God. Stop with all this nonsense. You are a child of God. Stop with all this doubt. You are saved and kept by the perfect, powerful hand of the Almighty And so why follow after these other so-called gods? Why follow after all these other so-called great identities? We have our identity. And we have our identity that is set in Christ. It's a beautiful reminder. And something I need to preach to myself every single day, for I too am prone to forget that identity. I too am prone to set my identity in something else. And so I need these words of John to remind me this is who I am. And one of the reasons why it is so important to be reminded of this is not for just our own preservation, but because of what it also reminds us about everyone else. For as John speaks of our identity, he also reminds us that this means we know something about everyone else too, doesn't it? For having reminded us of our identity in Christ, in verse 19, he adds on that last phrase. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If it is true that those of us who are in Christ are made children of God, then it is also true, as John has already said, that those who remain outside of Jesus Christ are outside of God. That they are in the kingdom of darkness. This is a pretty bold statement for John to make, but it is not something he makes only once. If you've been with us early in our study in 1 John, particularly in chapters 2 through 3, he's, he's explored this dark reality. If you turn back a page to 1 John chapter 3, you see him speak this fact. In verse 7 where he says, or rather, yeah, verse 7 and 8, he says, little children, make sure none of you, no one deceives you. 
The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Time and time again in his letter, John reminds us of this true reality that in the midst of our struggle, we must not lose sight of the greater battle that is being waged. We must not lose sight that the reason why those unbelievers act the way they do is because they are following after the way of their ruler, Satan. Language of John in chapter 3 is quite disturbing, but, but as we come to chapter 5, it is perhaps even more disturbing when you consider the picture that John is painting of the world. Again, look with me at verse 19 as he says we know we are of god and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one so oftentimes when i imagine the world in terms of unbelievers and i think so many times as we as believers imagine the world we imagine it as this this world of chaos where all of these unbelievers are just actively seeking out to do whatever shameful act they can they can succeed in accomplishing It's a world of noise, a world of constant activity, an activity that is always dead set against the glory and holiness of God. And that is certainly true in the sense that they are committing sin. But the image that John paints is not an image of loud chaos, of sinners desperately seeking to commit sin. It's a picture of silence. Of darkness. It's a world in which Satan holds the world in his arms and he rocks them to sleep and slowly lays them down to the grave, making them believe the whole time, of course, that this is life. This will bring you joy. But of course, he's leading them to hell. And the world doesn't even know it. It's a disturbing image to consider, and yet it is so important for us to remember the the reality of the position of this world. For if we do not, we as believers can can swing from one extreme to the other, and, and so many believers are prone to remain silent. That is to say, they don't want to speak of the reality of sin. They don't want to speak to the reality of Satan and the coming judgment because they think it sounds, well, judgmental. They think it's hateful to speak of this truth. They know it's uncomfortable to speak of these things to their family and friends. And it's fair because it is uncomfortable. And there are many believers that convince themselves that, well, if, if I'm just kind, if I'm just polite, over time, maybe those unbelieving friends will come to faith. I certainly can relate to that hope. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot stand idly by as we watch Satan lie a loved one in their own grave. We must seek to wake them from their spiritual slumber. We must pray that God opens their eyes as he's opened ours. And we must remember that God uses us to that purpose. And so we must say something. We must speak of sin when we see it. And we must offer that loving, gracious hand of Christ in response. There is, of course, that other extreme that many believers fall into as well, though. For while some believers remain silent to the sin they see, there are other believers that are constantly screaming about the sin they see. They are constantly screaming of the shame of the sin that surrounds them. 
They're speaking of the folly of the world in which they live. The problem is they're just screaming it out loud and they're not actually talking to any of the unbelievers around them. They say things like, I cannot believe the world in which we live in. Can you believe what you heard on the news? Can you believe what so-and-so says? And the response to that, of course, is, well, yes. Yeah, they're unbelievers. Of course they're going to live like that. And while, yes, we ought to speak up in response to sin, our response is not to just scream about how annoyed we are by the world. Instead, we respond with compassion. And we lovingly point them to the truth of Christ. In so doing, we will speak of sin. But as we do so, our goal is not to just make them feel guilty. Our goal is to see their eyes open so they can see the love of Jesus is offered to them just as it was offered to us. And so as believers, we offer them that gospel. As believers, remembering who we are and remembering how we got here, we look at the dark world around us and we pray, God, please open their eyes. As believers, we respond as Jesus Christ is pictured responding in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 23, where we have this powerful picture of Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. Matthew 23, verse 37, we, we read these words of Jesus, the Son of God. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Here Jesus looks over a city that is about to crucify him. And his response is compassion upon the masses. His response is love. As he wishes they would come and be gathered as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Believers, if we know these things to be true, if we know who we are and I pray you do, if we know who they are and I pray you see that as well, are we responding appropriately? Do we see how much turmoil these truths save us from? How we don't need to lay awake at night being shocked and, and worried about the future of any event. For we know God's in control. We know the world lives in darkness and we know the only hope for that darkness is the light of Jesus Christ. And so are we responding appropriately? Are we responding in compassion? Are we responding in gratitude to God? Believer, let us daily remind ourselves of this basic truth. And in the midst of all the confusion of the world, in response to unbelievers doing things that will shock and appall you, let us not respond in surprise. But let us be a reminder of the fact that, of course they're doing that. That's who they are. And, and of course I'm not to do that because I'm in Christ. Let's remember who we are and let's remember who they are and let's respond appropriately. We do this because this too is a fundamental point of the faith. This too is something we come back to every single day. Now, of course, as I say all those things, I understand that the world will view so much of what I just said as just appalling arrogance. I get that. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I understand that that whole second point is so incredibly offensive. Because who am I? to tell you that we are in Christ and everyone else is wrong? Who are we as Christians in Cape Girardeau, Missouri to tell the rest of the world what God requires of them? How could we possibly be so arrogant 
as to think we can know that. That we can not just know who we are, but we know who they are as well. What, what gives us the right to know these things? Ultimately, at the root of this is the question, well, how do we know these things? What does all this knowledge and confidence rest upon? This is where John brings us to the third, and I think most fundamental of the fundamentals. That fundamental being in verse 20, we find out how we know what we know. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You can imagine the kind of arguments that John's accusers would, would want him to argue with. You can imagine the sort of things that are, that are cast upon believers in that day. For when John speaks of these false teachers, he oftentimes is speaking of very learned men and women. So too can you see this in the false teachers in Corinth. So too can you see this in the enemies of the church throughout the New Testament. These are not arguments that are coming from some uneducated class. These arguments are coming from the philosophers of their day. And you can imagine them asking people like John, on whose authority do you make your argument? And if you're John, or at least if I was John, I would be tempted to say, how dare you, sir? I'm an apostle. I saw Jesus. I talked with Jesus. I know Jesus. And I would be prone to base all of my argument upon myself, upon what I've given up, upon what I've seen, upon what I've accomplished. But that's not the authority that John appeals to. Nor is it ultimately the authority that any of the apostles appeal to, surprisingly. Now when John ultimately grounds his argument and explains how he can know this for certain, he grounds it in Christ. Namely, in the work of Christ and in the ultimate identity of Christ. We see the work of Christ that John first points to. There in verse 20 again he says, We know two things here. We know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Here John again returns to his bread and butter. Here again John returns to that same theme he's addressed so many times. He addresses the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It should not surprise us that John returns to this argument in his close because it is that argument that he opened up with. Back in 1 John chapter 1, as he opens this letter again, he wrote, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Just as John opened up his gospel, and just as John opened up his letter, so too John returns to this basic historical fact. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth. He was a living, breathing, fully human person that John saw with his own eyes, that John heard and that hundreds and hundreds and thousands of other people saw and heard and watched John says, we know that. It is a good reminder, again, believer, that our faith does not rest in some philosophical proposition. It, re it rests in historical truth. A person who lived and breathed and walked and, and spoke with others. 
And as John speaks of his incarnation, he, he speaks to what this incarnation produced and accomplished. For as we look back at verse 20 again, as he speaks of the incarnation, what does he say has resulted? What's resulted is this understanding so that we may know him who is true. Jesus Christ came for a very specific purpose on a very specific mission. That mission was in part to explain the Father, was to present God to the people. We see this point, we see this mission back in the Gospel of John in, in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 16, 8 through 18, John says this, speaking of Jesus. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The language there is this language of exegesis, what we seek to do every week from the pulpit. When we exegete a text, we are explaining it. We're walking you through the text and attempting to show you what this means. As Jesus appears on earth, he's doing the same thing, but not to a text, to, to God. He's saying, here's what, what God is like. Here is how he acts. Here is his revealed will. Jesus himself speaks to that same idea later in John, in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, verse 8, actually, verse 7. In John 14, verse 7, Jesus speaking to the disciples says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That's enough for us. It's a great response from the disciples, by the way. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father are, that, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Here is part of the mission of Jesus Christ. It is to exegete, explain the Father, and as a result of this understanding that we are given, we are saved. We are brought back in verse 20 to that same theme we discussed in verse 19, to the same theme that John has discussed throughout. Because of this understanding that's been granted to us, we as believers are now in God because we as believers are now in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful saying and, and deeply humbling for it's another reminder of the fact that nothing we have is the result of our own doing, is the result of our own working. The only reason why you see God is because God opened up your eyes. The only reason why you hear God is because God opened up your ears. The only reason why you believe is because God gave you the brain to believe. Every single step that you have taken in terms of your salvation, in terms of your justification, in terms of your justification, and ultimately your glorification, all of it, all of this from his gracious hand. So that all the glory goes to him. John says this. This is the completed work. This is the work that, that Jesus has accomplished in granting us understanding and granting us salvation. 
And yet again, even at this point in time, we realize the false teachers could perhaps come in and say, well, yeah, that's great. We agree that Jesus did a lot of those things, that, yeah, Jesus walked, he talked, he was fully man. And we agree that he even spoke a great gospel that brought you to a saving point, but, but we have something else for you, believer. We have something that Jesus Christ himself did not fully accomplish. And it's with that lingering doubt that John speaks not only to Jesus Christ's completed work, but where he ultimately rests in Jesus' complete identity and an identity that, can, that cannot be trumped by any false teacher, by any teacher at all. That identity is found in the very end of our verse, where again John says, we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. If you read too quickly, you miss the significance of what John is saying here. If you read too quickly, you miss how shocking how bold of a proclamation this is. For we can read through these titles like Son, Jesus Christ, Eternal Life, God, and, and we can allow these words just echo in our minds because they are so familiar, but these hold such deep truths that speak not just to the humanity of Christ, although they do, for he is Jesus. They do not simply speak to the fact that he is Messiah, which he is, for he is the Christ, the promised one but they speak to the fact that he, the one whom John watched, the one whom John touched, the one whom was crucified, the one who was risen again, he is very God of very God. For he says this, he is the true God and the eternal life. As John opened up his letter, he opened with, with this broad declaration of the, in, of the incarnation. And he described the various works of Jesus in an attempt to cause his readers to take their focus off the false teachers, to take their focus off the dark world around them and, and to see the beauty, to see the light of Jesus. And in a cyclical way throughout 1 John, we've seen these arguments come back around and around and around and they all come back around to the same place, the same person, Jesus Christ. And so as he closes this discussion in verse 20, it should be no surprise that he brings us back to that same foundational principle. That principle being when we speak of the teachings of Christ, when we say we profess faith in Christ, we are not professing faith again in some philosophical system. We are placing our trust in the almighty, infinite creator of heaven and earth. And it is upon his authority that everything rests. It's because he has said that it is well that we know it is well. It is because he has called you his child that you know you are his child. It's because he has said he is the truth that you can know for a fact that he is truth. And so regardless of what the world says to us, regardless of how complex and complicated the questions that are asked of us that might cause us to question our understanding of the faith, that might cause us to question how deeply we understand this. Our response is never a response of doubt. For in that moment of fear, in that moment of confusion, we remind ourselves of these three basic things. We remind ourselves of the fact that, to know regardless of what the world says, I know how to live. Regardless of what the world calls me, I know who I am. 
And regardless of the level of authority and power someone else might carry with them, I know who has the ultimate power. God himself. There is nowhere else to turn. And so as we consider these things in closing, I know there are many of you in here, or some of you in here, who sit in darkness this morning. Who hold to some other belief. Who have rejected the gospel, possibly because of hypocrisy in the church. And possibly because of the own suffering you've gone through. And as I've tried to, to emphasize in the past, I understand these things. I understand this world is harsh and that professing believers can be very rude and cruel at times. But unbeliever, please hear me when I say your acceptance or rejection of the gospel is never dependent upon what some other person has told you or how some other person has treated you. It ultimately comes and rests upon the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. And so as I said last week, unbeliever, read the gospel of John. See Jesus Christ hear the teachings of Jesus Christ and understand that he is not just some representative of another faith. He is the real God. He is the way, the truth, and the life and no one can come to the Father except through him. An unbeliever, I beg you, hear that word this morning and believe and be brought to the light. If you have any questions about that, again, please let me know afterwards. I'll be out in the lobby and be thrilled to speak to you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in a confusing world. Let us not add to that confusion. Let's not forget the standards that God set for us. It's clear in Scripture. Let's hold to that. Can we help each other hold to those standards? When we see a brother or sister in Christ fail, can we pray for them and lovingly bring them back onto the path? We live in a confusing world in which there are constantly other identities being heaped upon us, but can we remember, believer, who we are? You are a child of God. There's nothing greater than that. And dear believer, we live in a world that is desperately trying to gain more power, a world in which there are endless lines of, a line of successors desperately trying to prove themselves to be the most powerful, to be the most willing and able to lead. But can we remember that we follow not after them, but that our allegiance is the one true Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let us rest all our hope in him. Let us, believer, daily in response to the confusion around us, say over and over again, we believe that he, Jesus, is the Christ. We believe he is the son of the living God. We believe he is our Lord and our Savior. And it is to him we look daily. Let's close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, it is so easy to allow our eyes to look elsewhere. And it is so easy in response to accusations this world brings upon us to to become puffed up and to try to defend ourselves, to try to rest upon our own intellect, to rest upon our own abilities, and yet, God, we are reminded that all we are is because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for that, God. For apart from your work, we would still be blind, we would still be deaf, we would still be resting in our grave. Yet the same Spirit who is at work in the resurrection of Jesus Christ has resurrected our souls. And we stand before you, God, eternally grateful. 
Might we be men and women who hold to the standards you've set for us? Might we be men and women who boast only in your son, Jesus Christ? And might, be, might we be men and women who ultimately are devoted to his rule? We love you, God, and we praise you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.